Well, welcome everyone to another week in this week in government enforcement. I'm Jerome Thomas, as always, joined by Tom Firestone, my co-chair of the government enforcement group and co-host. Um, we got uh, we got some interesting stuff to talk about here today. Um, Tom's going to start out talking about the new OECD report on anti on combating anti-corruption, um, and there's some some interesting aspects in there that sort of get into a little bit of the corporate governance aspects, which I think I'll probably speak to at some point when he raises the issues. And then I'm going to talk about the, uh, the, the, the settlement last week between the SEC and pro-Petro arising out of failure to disclose uh, executive perks and other, um, other items required under um, regulation SK. It's the latest in a wave of cases being brought by the SEC related to public company failures to disclose executive perks and compensation adequately. Uh, but I guess with that, Tom, why don't you start us out, all right? Thanks, Jerome. Um, the, as Jerome said, last Friday, Black Friday here in the United States, the OECD Working Group on Bribery issued new recommendations for combating corruption. And to explain why this is significant, I want to just back up a little about what is the explain what is the OECD Working Group on Bribery. The OECD Working Group on Bribery was established to monitor countries' compliance with the OECD Anti-Bribery Convention from 1997. This is basically an international convention that requires governments to criminalize foreign bribery and to prosecute those who pay bribes overseas. It's really, you know, to a large extent, a response to concerns of the U.S. business community that when the FCPA was the only foreign bribery law that any country had, the U.S. companies were being placed at a competitive disadvantage vis-a-vis company, German, Japanese, French companies, what have you, which didn't face prosecution in their home countries if they were to pay bribes for um, to win contracts. So the U.S. used its diplomatic leverage to get the OECD convention passed in 1997. And the working group on bribery is, as I say, responsible for implementing that convention and monitoring how the countries that are signatories to the working to the OE, the anti-convention, the anti-bribery convention, there are 44 of them, how they do in implementing Implementing, um, in implementing the convention. So they do like monitoring visits from time to time in these countries. They issue reports, what they're doing well, what they're not doing well, what they should, um, where they need to improve to make sure that this convention is actually having its effect. From time to time, they issue recommendations to governments as to how they can better cor uh, combat corruption. They issued a major set of recommendations in 2009, and just last week they updated these recommendations with a whole new set of recommendations for governments, uh, which really draws on best practices in anti-corruption that have evolved over the last um, the last 10 years since they issued their last set of recommendations. I'd recommend that everyone read these. It's about 25 pages in length. They're quite detailed, so we don't have time to discuss every aspect of it. And I just wanted to hit on some of the main aspects of the recommendations. Um, one of the interesting parts of the recommendations, they say that co government should do a better job focusing on the demand side of bribery. And I think this is very important because so often enforcement efforts in the U.S. are 90 Five percent focused on the supply side, supply side of bribery, companies paying bribes. That obviously needs to be done, but it takes two to tango. And unless you're going after the demand side of bribery, you're not really facing uh, confronting corruption in a full way. Obviously, 
it's it, most bribe situations are initiated by the bribe taker for the simple reason that most people would rather be receiving money than giving money. So I think that the demand side is extremely important. For the first time, the OECD has come out with a strong statement that governments should try to address the demand side. Now, they can't tell countries to prosecute the bribe takers um, because it's just not within the scope of the convention. But they do put in a lot of language about how countries should educate their government officials on why they shouldn't take bribes. They should develop mechanisms for reporting these, mechanisms for confiscating the proceeds of bribery, work with other foreign governments in terms of exchange of evidence um, on bribe taking. And I think this is an important statement and it will move the field forward if governments do start going after bribe takers more aggressively in response to this. Another aspect of the recommendations concerns what they call non-trial resolutions. Now, this is something we've seen in the U.S. for years, plea agreements, deferred prosecution agreements, non-prosecution agreements. A lot of countries don't have this, and this is something that's very controversial. A lot of countries feel that, you know, this is a coercive mechanism, it's, or it's a way of letting companies out. They just pay a fine, they don't have to go to trial, and justice is not really served. So this took a lot of work for the working group to get this through, but they did, and there's a strong recommendation that governments uh, implement non-trial resolutions, as they call them, as a way to make the... the uh, the battle against corruption more efficient and to more efficiently prosecute companies that um, investigate and prosecute these cases. And they're very careful to put in there that the criteria for non-trial resolutions have to be objective, transparent, and fair, and not interfere with individual prosecution. So it can't be the case that you let a company out through a DPA or whatever, and that means you can't prosecute the uh, corporate executives who may have been responsible. Um, so I think this is a really good way of trying to square the circle, you know, take the best from the U.S. system, but then address the concerns that other countries have about um, plea agreements and non-trial resolutions. Um, they also said that uh, Governments should take steps to create incentives for companies to implement effective compliance programs. Now, this is something that, you know, again, we've seen in the U.S. for a long time, that if you have a compliance program, you're in a better position when you negotiate a settlement. You'll get a better settlement. You might be able to use this as a defense to some extent. They support all of that. They caution, though, not to make a compliance program an absolute defense to a prosecution, but just to treat it as a mitigating factor, less, you know, the companies get off scot-free because they had a um, simply because they had a compliance program. They also say something which I haven't seen in a lot of places that this should be the strength of a company's compliance program should be a factor that governments take into account when they grant subsidies, licenses, and public contracts to companies. So create a positive incentive, not just if you've got a compliance program, you might get out of a prosecution, but if you've got a compliance program, you're gonna be in a much better position to get government contracts. Another innovative approach to um, compliance that I had not seen previously, at least not in this developed in this way. Um, Something else they uh, stress is whistleblower protection. Now, again, this is something we know well in the US. Jerome, you've spoken a lot about the SEC's whistleblower incentive programs and how effective that is at developing information. This, the recommendations on whistleblower protection um, from the OECD, I think go beyond what we have seen um, before. They talk about creating the you know, strong protections covering, quote, the broadest possible range of reporting persons, not just the employee or the individual, 
but third persons who could be affected by this, i.e. family members of the whistleblowers. Um, they also define retaliation, they, you know, strong recommendation to prohibit retaliation, which they define extremely broadly to be reputational damage, blacklisting, other forms of harassment of the whistleblower. Um, they also say that governments should consider, and I stress that all the recommendations are in the form of consider. None of these are mandatory. Governments should consider these because otherwise they wouldn't be able to just get it through politically. Um, the government should consider shifting the burden of proof in allegations of retaliation to the company which has allegedly retaliated. They should have to prove that they didn't retaliate. So it should be a presumption that when somebody claims they've been the victim of retaliation, that that is that there should be that presumption, and then the burden should shift to the um, subject of that complaint to prove they didn't retaliate. And they also did something else that was interesting with regard to whistleblowers. They took out the requirement that the whistleblower's complaint be in good faith. Um, I heard the chair of the working group, uh, Drago Koch, speak on this uh, just last night. He said, look, I was a police officer in Slovenia for many years. I don't really care what somebody's motives are in coming forward because there are a lot of people with bad motives who come forward with very important, uh, valuable information that we can use. So we took out um, good faith and left just a reasonable basis. So you can't fabricate something. You can't invent okay. something. But you can have a bad faith motive for inventing, for providing information, so long as there is a reasonable basis for saying that the information is true. Well, Tom, um, I mean, isn't good faith and reasonable basis kind of the same thing? Well, not really, because good faith can be interpreted that you're doing it out of good motives. And what ah, he was saying gotcha, was, gotcha, you can have yeah. the worst motive so long as what you're saying is true. And you can be, you don't have to be honest about your motives. You don't yeah, have to say anything yeah, about your it. motives. Um, which I thought was, again, an interesting uh, wrinkle in innovation. They also stress, of course, the importance of international cooperation and coordination among different countries as they investigate cases and bring cases to resolution. Now, we have all represented companies that are subject to prosecutions in various countries around the world. That can be incredibly frustrating because country company will settle with country A, only to find country B, C, and D piggyback on that and try to hit them again with a penalty for the same acts that they have already settled for in country A. Uh, the OECD actually was responsive to these concerns and said that when countries coordinate their investigations and prosecution, they have to pay attention to the risks of prosecuting the same person or the same company twice, which I thought was not just a sop to companies, but a very sort of common sense approach to this because Again, the goal is to try to incentivize cooperation. If companies don't have some reasonable assurance that they're not going to be hit repeatedly for the same conduct, um, they're going to be less likely to come in. And this, of course, is consistent with DOJ's um, statements about not piling on. So I thought these were all um, very thoughtful and reasonable um, approaches, drawing on the lessons that we've all learned over the last um, 10 years in the area of international enforcement. Two other points I want to hit on before I turn it back to you, Jerome, is one, <laughs> they hit the, the, the everybody's favorite subject of data privacy and data protection. Um, almost always an obstacle in internal investigations. No, you can't get this information out of the country. No, you can't look at these emails because of X, Y, and Z. We don't have explicit consent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they addressed this for the first time. And they said, of course, data privacy is important and consistent with local laws on data privacy and the considerations underlying them. Countries should at the same time be very careful to ensure 
that compliance with data protection rules does not impede effective investigations or effective cross-border cooperation in investigations. So I was very glad to see somebody at the international level finally speak to this issue, which can, if it is abused, be a real obstacle to effective um, investigations. And the final point I wanted to hit, and by this is by no means um, comprehensive. This is just some of the highlights of the guidance. And as I say, I would encourage everybody to look at it because I'm not doing it justice. They also had a lot of recommendations relating to auditing and internal controls. And one of them I want to get your thoughts on, Jerome, is there's a recommendation in there that governments should, quote, uh, consider requiring external auditors to report suspected acts of bribery of foreign public officials to competent authorities independent of the company, such as law enforcement or regulatory authorities. And for those countries that permit such reporting, ensure that auditors making such reports on reasonable grounds are protected from legal action. So this is basically saying you should consider requiring external auditors who, in the course of their audit work, discover evidence of possible bribery to go to the regulatory authorities independent of their reporting to the company. Uh, Jerome, my understanding is this would be quite an expansion of the role of external auditors, at least as we know it in the U.S. Interested in your thoughts on how this squares with uh, current Yeah, Tom, I mean, look, I've, I've looked at this issue a lot in the context of privilege. And right, if you look at the case law, there's a lot of the case law that says, look, an auditor isn't an agent of the company. An auditor stands sort of independent of the company, it, it is a gatekeeper. But the reality is, there is a there is a, a a relationship there where the auditor gets a significant amount of information that other arms length third parties would not get. I think the most applicable corollary here under current law, federal law, is 10 Cap A and, and the Exchange Act, which requires, under certain circumstances, where an auditor identifies an illegal act. And it escalates it up the chain and management doesn't take appropriate remedial action. And eventually the board doesn't take uh, or require management to take remedial action. An auditor through a number of different sort of escalation uh, steps eventually gets a choice, which is um, they either withdraw, resign from the audit relationship, in which case the public company would have to file an 8K announcing the resignation of the auditor, which would no doubt trigger an investigation or at least an inquiry by the government, or it can also report or give the SEC a copy of the report, which it gave to the board of directors of the wrongdoing and the failure to um, remediate the wrongdoing. That, of course, is instead of the company doing it, right? If the company does it, the auditor does not have to do it, but, they, but the company has to give the auditor notice that it provided the SEC with that report of wrongdoing provided by the the auditor. So the point being is that there currently is a, 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 a requirement or a provision under federal law that permits, under certain circumstances, the auditor to go to, say, the SEC and report wrongdoing. But it's not a requirement, right? They can instead resign. Now, that will have basically the same impact. Um, but but here... Um, this I'm is sorry, but that's, that's permitted. Auditors... Oh, yeah, but it's that. not... But it's not required. Yeah, it's not required, but it's also permitted only after there is only a non-responsiveness exactly. by yeah. the company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, you know, I, the only reason I'm mentioning it is because it's about the closest corollary we have under present federal law. And even in that case, it's a far cry for the reasons you and I just spoke about. 
Yeah, so if this goes through, I mean, this will be something that they will now be. And I mention all of this because now that these recommendations are out there, when the working group on bribery goes to monitor companies' compliance with the convention, they will evaluate the extent to which they are considering these recommendations and what they're doing with them. So I think that this will be, will get into the parlance more and more um, as countries coordinate their anti-bribery, um, their anti-bribery efforts. I reiterate, these are directed, these recommendations are directed at governments because they are the signatories to the convention, not private companies, but they obviously have a lot of consequences for companies. So again, urge everyone to um, read them and we will continue to discuss and see what happens with this, whether or not countries change their laws in response to this and what effects that has for companies. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. Good stuff. Um, so literally two hours before this filming, I was on a, in a meeting with a former partner of ours, former federal prosecutor also, um, real smart guy. And we were talking about executive perks and executive compensation and law enforcement actions for failure to disclose perks. Um, and we're getting the, the most recent case on that. And it was interesting, Tom, you know, sort of comes with the, of the former federal prosecutor's mind or prosecutor's mind, which is, I didn't think that the government gave, you know what, about, you know, bringing actions about a company's failure to disclose certain elements of compensation provided to, uh, to its, you know, officers or directors. And um, there's a fair amount of truth to that, right? I think a lot of, if you surveyed people, I think you'd get a mixed bag of people who say how aggressive the government has been in, 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 in prosecuting uh, uh, what some perceive to be excessive executive compensation, et cetera. Um, of course, that, that's always, that's been a big deal or at around the time of the financial crisis 10 years ago, but it's never really gone away. But kind of the point is again, digging a little bit beneath the surface, over the past 18 months or two years, again, cross administrations, and I think it's critical to recognize these are investigations that have crossed administrations. The SEC has been increasingly looking at public company disclosures uh, of uh, uh, executive compensation and the receipt of perquisites and inadequate disclosures of those. Keep in mind that the SEC does not have jurisdiction over how much companies pay officer or pay their officers, what kind of perquisites they pay their officers. However, the SEC does have jurisdiction, they claim, over disclosures by public companies of the, that, that, those arrangements. So where are we? Last week, the SEC filed this case against ProPetro and its former CEO, um, uh, a, a gentleman by the last name of Brendan. And uh, the gist of the allegations are that the company failed to disclose perks and stock pledges as required under regulation SK, um, and that the, uh, the former uh, CEO caused the company to engage in those violations. And again, this is a pattern um, or the latest in a pattern of SEC filing uh, executive compensation disclosure related enforcement actions. So um, let's start from the beginning, right? Um, where does all this come from? The duty to disclose executive compensation. I'm pulling right from the SEC's website. Quote, the federal securities laws require clear, concise, and understandable disclosure about compensation paid to CEOs, CFOs, and certain other highly ranking executive officers of public companies. 
You can locate information about executive pay in the company's annual proxy statements. Um, and I, I put in a parenthetical section, there's a, there's a rule 14.83 prohibits the solicitation of proxies without furnishing information um, that's set forth in regulation SK, which is uh, compensation related information for executive. And that's how the SEC got this company here. But get off my parenthetical. You can find the information in the annual proxy statement, the company's annual report on Form 10K, registration statements filed by the company to register securities for the sale to the public, and the company's current report on Form 8K. In the annual proxy statement, a company must disclose information concerning the amount and type of compensation paid to its chief executive officer, chief financial officer, and the three other most highly compensated executive officers, end quote. So they state it pretty clearly on, on their website. And so where's this going here? So let's talk about perks. So um, public companies, issuers that are fully reporting and registered companies under um, the Exchange Act are subject to Regulation SK. Um, and Regulation SK requires issuers um, to um, include executive compensation disclosures, including information about perquisites provided to the identified executive officers that we talked about before. And then specifically, um, item 402 of Reg SK, which the SEC in this case specifically used, requires disclosure of the total value of all perquisites and other personal benefits provided to named executive officers who receive at least $10,000 worth of such items in a given year, and also requires the identification of all perquisites and personal benefits provided to you know, the, identification, the identification of all perquisites and personal benefits by type and quantification of any perquisite or personal benefit that exceeds the greater of $25,000 or 10% of the total perquisites. So again, there are specific requirements here set forth in the securities law, laws for companies to disclose perquisites provided to uh, the, these named executive officers. And guys, when you look at the, at the form in the SECs in a proxy statement or in the 10K, if it's not otherwise incorporated by reference, um, there will be a chart that says officer name, I'm working this way, officer name, salary, bonus. There'll be another column maybe, and then there will be a column most often, perquisites. And there will be an identification of perquisites, and there might even be a footnote that describes the nature of those perquisites, right? Was it um, personal travel? Was it um, the use of a, a, a company car for personal use, right? The, the, the nature and the extent of perquisites go on and on. But the point is the SEC under the securities laws enforces the law against companies that in their view do not adequately disclose the value of these perquisites and personal benefits provided to these named executive officers. And that's exactly what the SEC did in this case. With respect to air travel here, the SEC in particular said, from at least 2014 through 2019, the former CEO Redmond owned a 50% interest in a private aviation company that owned a Learjet. The SEC claimed that this former CEO principally used the Learjet for business-related travel. Um, and the, and the, the company that he owned 50% interest in invoiced ProPetro for its expenses associated with the, the CEO's use of the aircraft. Uh, and that the company ProPetro also employed two pilots to fly the Learjet in 2017 and 2018. 
Again, you can see where this is coming, where this is going. What's interesting is that the SEC noted the company ProPetro didn't have a formal policy regarding approval and use of non-commercial aircraft or a process for reimbursement of these private, private aviation expenses. Again, which is a practice point for companies out there, make sure you have policies that back up your personal expenditures and perquisite related, not only disclosures, but expenditures, because this is something that the SEC is looking at. Um, the SEC said though, that even though without a formal policy or process, um, the, 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 the aviation company had a practice of sending monthly invoices to ProPetro for the CEO's flights and that the CEO would initial these invoices uh, signifying his approval and pass them along to finance who pressed them for payment along with any other vendor invoices. And that the, the, the SEC said that from 2017 to 2018, um, uh, 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 approximately 10% of Redmond's Aviation Co. invoice travel was for personal trips and they identified the amounts, 42,000 roughly in 2017 and 117,000 roughly in 2018. And they also said that the, the, the pilots on ProPetro's uh, payroll that were flying this Learjet um, for both uh, personal and business flights um, cost the, uh, the, the company roughly $52,000 in 2017 and $40,018 for the pilot-related expenses for his personal trips. So again, what the SEC is doing here is they're saying if there are expend expenditures that are being borne by the company, but that are for personal use by a named executive, these need to be separately tracked. You should probably have a policy governing the approval and tracking of these, and then also they need to be disclosed. The SEC also made some allegations about improper use of the company's credit card um, uh, by, by the executive. Um, they said that the, the SEC alleged that uh, the, the CEO and his family members used the company credit card for personal purchases that were not integrally and directly related to the performance of his duties as CEO. Um, and they identified roughly $127,000 in undocumented and or personal expenditures between 2017 and 2018 um, that represented in, in the SEC's estimation in this, in this order or this complaint um, about perquisites that needed to be disclosed. Um, they said these needed to be disclosed as additional executive compensation. And even though the company paid for all these charges, they, they failed to dis, uh, disclose these charges as additional executive compensation. Furthermore, interesting, you know, you think of this stuff as all, all like travel or transportation. The SEC also said, oh, by the way, there's a charitable donation and event tickets, charitable donations and event tickets that were for the benefit of the former CEO that, that, that uh, were for his personal benefit and personal use that weren't um, disclosed. They were accounted for or tracked internally as perquisites, but due to shortcomings in the control process at the company, weren't disclosed as perquisites. So again, you have a failure to completely track things as perquisites for the credit cards and, uh, and uh, the, the, the use of the private jet. But then you also have additional expenses that were tracked as perks, but didn't otherwise make it into the company's disclosures about perks. Um, so what's the breakdown here? Look, this information is, can be challenging at times to track. And so in, in order to help with this process, um, companies will oftentimes use a questionnaire. You know, the SEC calls it a DNO questionnaire um, in this complaint or in this order, I should say. Um, and I, I think really what drove this, guys, is that, is that the, the DNO questionnaire called for disclosures of, of these perquisites. 
but that in most cases, or that in all cases related to the alleged uh, purposes that were not disclosed, um, the, neither the, 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 the former CEO did not identify these on his DNO questionnaire, notwithstanding the fact that other perquisites were disclosed. So, uh, you know, for example, they said in 2017, Redmond included some perquisites like his company car, but failed to disclose any of the other things we identified above. In 2018, Redmond failed to, failed to complete a DNO questionnaire at all. And then in 2019, although Redmond included some perquisites on his DNO questionnaire, he didn't disclose personal air travel or any of the credit card, personal credit card charges reimbursed by the company or the various um, uh, previously authorized perquisites, the charitable contributions and the, uh, uh, and the event tickets. So again, here, if you're sort of reading this in totality and you're looking at it from the securities law standpoint, what the SEC is really saying here is that, look, we're not taking issue with whatever perquisites you provide to, to, to your named executive officers. But what you have to do is you have to have a way of tracking and you have to, you, and you should have policies that govern who reviews them, who, who approves them, and then how they're tracked, and then ultimately ensure that they make their way through to the disclosure standpoint, because that's really what the SEC, that, that's the only hook the SEC has here, is that you haven't disclosed it. They have no jurisdiction, they've admitted as much, they have no jurisdiction over the amount of purposes. They can't sue a company or an, or an officer for excessive pay. They can sue a company and an officer for not disclosing fully executive compensation and perquisites. So um, and at the end of the day, the SEC alleged a, a number of reporting, books and records and internal controls violations against the company, as well as um, uh, against uh, Redmond for causing these violations. Interestingly, um, the, uh, the, the, the SEC also brought violations of the anti-fraud provisions under Section 14A, which don't require scienter, that prohibit making false statements in a proxy solicitation. Again, the false statements, guys, being not fully disclosing um, the, the nature or the amount of the, the perquisites. So again, this, these weren't just technical books and records reporting and internal controls violations. They brought an anti-fraud violation here as well albeit uh, a non-scienter-based uh, anti-fraud provision. Finally, um, because the company engaged in offering during the relevant time period, the SEC brought charges under Section 17A3, which are the anti-fraud provisions of the Securities Act, which also don't require scienter and mere negligence is sufficient. Um, point being that these disclosures or lack thereof of the full nature of the perquisites made their way into, according to the SEC, to the registration statements filed by the company for these securities offerings. And then as a result, this was misleading. Um, and so um, that's where we are, right? Um, look, I don't think this case changes anything. Um, it's not unlike the cases we've seen in the past, but these are, these are helpful reminders to people who are following the white collar and SEC enforcement or regulatory enforcement space that um, oftentimes it's not just about fraud. It's just not about corruption, right? There are very technical things oftentimes that exist, like this is executive compensation time. This is an area of incredible specialization in our firm, let alone in companies. Right? These issues reside in a small corner of companies. 
And um, what the SEC is really doing here, I think, my own personal view, is that they're trying to shed light on the need for there to be broader dissemination about knowledge and a, a better process from the people in the know about perks to the people responsible for making disclosures about the perks so that there are no, um, that there are no hiccups in fully disclosing, disclosing ex executive perquisites. And again, this is across administrations. So I, I can't sit here and say this is the new Gensler SEC because this was happening under the Clayton SEC as well. This is something that the agency cares about. But this is right, because if I'm a shareholder in a company, I want to know if not just how they're being compensated, but if there is abuse for personal for personal reasons or just non-abuse, how much they're spending on personal expenses. And how often do we see personal expenses uh, by executives as sort of the tip of the iceberg or a red flag of possibly deeper corruption? And sunlight is the best disinfectant. So if this is all required to be tracked and disclosed, that to me seems to be a great deterrent to the kind of abuse which we have seen and a great way of detecting possible abuse. And it's something shareholders have the right to know. So I think that this is, um, it seems to me, they've approached this in a very sensible way. They're using their point of entry, which is disclosure, to require companies to disclose, to track and disclose this stuff. So this seems to me, a good thing that they're doing, and as you say, nonpartisan across political lines. Yeah, yeah, Tom, I mean, it's really, if you think about it, it's no different than them bringing an internal controls and books and records case because you spent a couple hundred thousand dollars in your subsidiary in Thailand, um, and there's suspicion that there was some funny business going on, but you, you can't actually prove what the substance of the underlying transactions are, so therefore they're, they're essentially unknown transactions. That's a case the SEC brings or would consider bringing probably nine times out of 10, right? Uh, and, and so as a result, this is kind of a corollary to that. I mean, they're obviously distinguishing elements, but it, 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 it's within the ambit about of- about tracking where your money is? Do you, are you tracking yeah. the flow of money, whether yeah. it be to a third party distributor or an executive for private, you know, helicopter trips or whatever, but it seems to me consistent with what they do and appropriate for them to do and a way, a great way of bringing transparency to this. Now, I know a lot of executives won't like it, but, you know, that's that's what you get for being an executive in a publicly traded company, and uh, it makes our economy as a whole much stronger overall to have these kinds of protections, I think. All right. Good talk, Tom. Well done. We'll uh, we got two more this year, I think. Um, but we'll meet next week and then we'll probably meet one time after then maybe we'll take the holiday season off. So I guess with that, good stuff, Tom, take care, everyone. We'll see you next week. Keep the comments, questions coming. Um, and have a good one, everyone. All right. Thanks.